This is episode 93 of The New Disruptors. Hugs and kisses goodbye, live at XOXO 2014. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This podcast is made possible in part this week by 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Our listeners can visit 99designs.com slash disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free. We're also brought to you this week by GIF Pop, the makers of physical renditions of your animated GIFs through the scientific magic of lenticular printing. Take a GIF with up to 10 frames and receive a version you can tilt for animation, or buy a design from featured artists who receive 80% of the proceeds, or even submit your own work for consideration for sale. Listeners get 10% off a GIF Pop order by using coupon code DISRUPT during checkout. Visit gifpop.io. folks, and welcome to the last episode, for a while at least, of The New Disruptors. It's been a good run of weekly episodes for almost two years, but it's time to take a break as the effort put into these shows is unsustainable with our current level of financial support. Thanks to all the individuals and companies who helped make the show possible, and let us put in the level of attention that I and Michael Warner, our audio engineer, brought to bear. In particular, I'd like to thank all our direct patrons through our ongoing Patreon campaign. I'm, I'm going to read all their names at the end of this episode. A few more thanks to Lex Friedman at the Midroll is my dear friend, and his interest in selling ads for the show is absolutely why we were able to be around this long and also led to his current career. My friend Jeff Tolbert wrote the catchy theme music for the program. I think it always helps set the tone for what follows. Thanks to all the guests who gave generously of their time over the last two years and let me pick their brains for the benefit of, of you guys and, and have these conversations often free form, free flowing about what they do and, and what has made their careers and their art and their work tick. And a special thanks to Max Temkin and Cards Against Humanity, who stepped in during some dry periods of sponsorship to back the program and to underwrite ads from independent creators. Thanks, Max. Now, on to this episode, recorded live in September at the XOXO 2014 Festival in Portland, Oregon, which you've heard me talk about so much over the run of this show. I interview three guests, and you'll hear more about them in the program. Near the end of the podcast, one of the guests takes issue with another, and the sound may get a bit murky. We try to work it out, and I think you can hear everything. I spoke to everyone after the podcast, and there are no hard feelings. The conclusion was that we wished we'd had another hour on stage to talk about the issues that were raised. It was an interesting moment and a perfect way to send this show off on hiatus. We may be back, but probably not in precisely this format. I've got a plan I'm working on that would encompass all of 2015, and New Disruptors podcasts and likely video would be part of that. Watch our Twitter feed at New Disruptors or my own feed at Glenn F, that's two N's and an F like Frank, for details. And now... On to the program. Hello, everybody. Woo! Welcome to a brand new XOXO event. This is Story 
It is a night of uh, four of our favorite uh, uh, podcasters coming and talking about stuff that they talk about. And, uh, and we have a great, really great lineup. I'm so excited. Uh, we, have, uh, we have New Disruptors, who's going to be up first, which is a, was a podcast started by Glenn Fleischman, which is so tightly aligned with what we talk about at XO. Yeah, absolutely. Huge. For Glenn. Uh, and this may be the last uh, from what he said on Twitter so that's really uh, a little bittersweet or a hiatus if we can persuade him that it, to just turn it into hiatus that would be great so uh, to start uh, please please huge warm round of applause for Glenn Fleischman New Disruptors So like Tinkerbell, if you applaud loudly enough, then maybe the podcast will live. We'll see. Oh, I'm, I'm just pulling it out. So the, the new disruptors, the, the basic idea was I came to XOXO in 2012, and I was in need of a change. I'm a journalist. I do some programming. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, but I saw a lot of really interesting things that people were doing. My background is in graphic design. I like to create things, and I wasn't sure how to pull it together. So I came to XOXO in 2012 and had my head torn off by all the interesting things people were doing, and more importantly, by the sense of community and the shape of how people describe what their lives were, which was in many ways almost more important than what the specifics were, but how they navigated the path through. So I didn't matter whether someone was a musician or an, an artist, a programmer, or what have you. It was more that they'd figured out a way to unlock this key for themselves for at least some of what they did, if not all of how they made a career. And I said, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to more people who did that. And I, I write a lot for blogs about things that are a little bit like this. And I started interviewing people. And I thought, maybe I should do a podcast. I hear these podcast things are popular. Some people listen to them. And I thought, well, this is the perfect time to start something. And in the space of a few months after uh, the, uh, the uh, September 2012 XOXO, about 85% of how I spent my time changed. And a part of it this podcast, and a part was joining Marco Arment's The Magazine, which I later purchased from him. Thank you, Marco. And uh, is about to celebrate its second anniversary in the middle of October, which is fun. There, look for news about our year two anthology coming out. Uh, and, um, but uh, what I, every week I would find somebody, and I had a whole list of people, and I've been going through folks over years and finding people just all over the map who do all kinds of different things. And some of the people I've interviewed are in this audience, in fact, uh, tonight. And the, the idea was how do you take what, a little bit of what XOXO is and how do you take the practicalities. I've always thought of it as practical inspiration. Find people who have unlocked a bit of what they want to do with themselves where they control all the pieces. And it could be uh, even on the intermediary side, companies like Etsy and Kickstarter and, and all, all the firms that help you, they take a tiny slice, or Patreon, you know, Jack Conti is here tonight, and I use Patreon for the podcast. Take a, a slice of what you do, but it's a very tiny slice, and they're not gatekeepers. They don't control you. And so over... 
over 90 episodes, over almost two years, I've talked to people across seemingly every field of endeavor, and, uh, and it's not that we're done. It's more that there are pipes that I keep talking about. They're pipes of love, time, and money. And when they all flow together, it's great. And when things start to leak and be, you know, have too much pressure in one, less than another. So I'm going to take a bit of a hiatus, regroup, and then we'll see where it goes. So this will probably be the last aired, at least for a while, and then we'll, we'll come back and see what's going on. So it's great to, to kind of do the full circle here at XOXO, and thank you all for coming out to hear our three magnificent guests, Jen Beckman, Zoe Zaldich, and Mike Merrill. And I'll, we'll bring them up, we'll do talk show style, bring them up and rotate them down the old couch. So if Jen will come up, I'll, we'll talk about her. Thanks, Jen, come on. So Jen Beckman, uh, if you attended in 2012, you remember Jen spoke at that event, and she founded her site, 20 by 200, in 2007 to provide art at accessible prices. Uh, she had a terrible, no good, very bad year for a lot of reasons. She can't discuss the particulars of what happened. That's fine. That's not what we're here about. But she had to reboot 20 by 200, its site, its technology, its art, and its trust with existing customers. So we're going to talk a bit about uh, trust today. And, so I'm looking at the clock, because we have three people to get through. We don't want to run too late. So let me pull out a clock before we get going, so we're not there. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about, like, you know, trust and rebooting and the rest of it. So without going in, like I say, without going into the particulars of it, you had this incredible challenge. 20 by 200 was a huge part of your life for, from 2007 for years. It's, you put a lot of your effort into that, to that site. Um, when you, you hit that point where you had a hiatus, you have to come back from that. How did you approach that when you said, we need to rebuild what we're doing, we're sort of starting over, but people know who we are? How did you approach that? Well, I, I, I guess part of it, too, is that the hiatus, I didn't actually have a lot of... You've, you've made a considered decision. <laughs> I sort of ended up in a situation and uh, had to actually... The first decision I had to make was whether to fight for it. Yes. Um, and, um, and then the second decision was, you know, after fighting for it for, I guess it took eight or nine months. It was very complicated. Um, I had to figure out how to bring it back. And, um, and I had a small team that worked with me through it. And I guess it was never a question about whether or not to bring it back because I always talk about 20 by 200 as this idea that formed in my brain as a complete thing, and then I was lucky enough to work with an amazing team, and it came out that way. And it was, it was I mean, I've never had, I've been doing internet shit since 1996. So, like, I, it was, like, very exciting to have that happen. And what had happened over the years was that um, it was no longer mine. It was something that meant something to a lot of people, and I was the steward of it, not the owner. Do you know, it, it just became a different thing. And so I, in conversations with the artists and in, in conversations with other people, like, I just felt responsible. I mean, in retrospect, I will say, like, I've definitely had days where I was like, what was I thinking? Because I regained full ownership of the company by assuming all of its liabilities, which, and I'm not a woman of means. Let's just say that, like, I live in my rent-stabilized apartment on the Lower East Side. I've run an art gallery for 10 years. I never cashed out. I worked at Netscape. My shares were underwater. Like, I've been through the shit, you know? And so, and, but again, there wasn't a lot of doubt for me. 
it, but I think that the, I, I will say the one guiding principle throughout all of it was that I refused to say that I was going to do anything until I knew for sure that I could do it. That was like my big criteria was I will not, and it's actually really hard because what happens is people say like, oh, I just want to hear back from you or I just, I really just want an update. Actually, no. <laughs> you want to hear the answer that you want to hear, but you, you might not even realize that. You might think that you want an update. And so, and so it, it, I just, I really had this sort of script going through my head of only committing to things that I knew were achievable and really spending a lot of time thinking about what that meant. Well, and you have three constituencies at least, right? You have artists you are working with on, right. on one hand. You have the customers on another hand. And you have suppliers and the PS shippers, all the people right. who make it happen. It seemed like you must have had to approach all of those groups in different ways as you restarted this. They approached, a lot of them approached me. And, and I will say that that was um, getting a lot of external validation from people was a huge part of it for me. What It was that, um, you know, I felt like if you look around and you like and trust the people who are on your side and they trust you, then you're doing something right. And the people who were on my side were on the side of good. They were people who I, you know, who I admired, who I respected. And, um, you know, a lot of the artists said to me that it was very important to them that 20 by 200 continue to exist. Um, and our key vendors um, who, you know, keep in mind, so, 20 by 200 was a multi-million dollar business when it went out of, when it went on hiatus. That's a good word. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, we went on hiatus in January. Um, of uh, 2013. Yeah. And holiday is always super important to us, in part because I love people giving art as a gift, and so it's something that we've always done a lot of work around. Because I, I, it really, like, sincerely gets me excited. I love... Because people think it's hard to do, and it's actually not that hard, and we talk about, you know. So, um, and as a startup, when you have an investor, the idea is that you're operating at a loss in order to accelerate your growth. And in Q4, if you're an e-commerce business, like, you really accelerate your growth in Q4. So we sort of hit that wall at peak liabilities, and so I have a $50,000 FedEx bill that I'm trying to, like, this is my life right now. <laughs> like, I'm trying to, like, not get my company shut down over a $50,000 FedEx bill. So there were a lot of, like, it was a lot of conversations. And the vendors, um, the key vendors sort of came and they wanted the support. And, and I think that part of it, too, was that they had never seen anything like it before. They'd rather it exist than not exist, so right. they're working with you because, I mean, that's fantastic. So you're in a situation where you'd, um, the people would rather you don't go under because they think there's potential. They want to support you and help you move forward right. and then eventually get paid, but they're more likely to get paid if they continue to exercise forbearance, right? Sure. I mean, I will say, and, and again, this is to me validation that it was right. Um, our fulfillment vendor not only accepted a settlement of 20 cents on the dollar for the debt that we had, which is outstanding and kind of what made it possible, he also invested in this very small financing that I did to relaunch the business. And I was like, okay, so here's a guy that I've worked with for 
you know, a year and a half or two years because we just switched to him as a new vendor. Not only is he writing off a huge amount of dollars, but he's also supporting the future. He believes in the future of the business. And so for me, the validation and the motivation came from people around me, and, and that made it, it made the hard stuff easy. Yeah, I mean, we should, you know, there's a little bit of an overview. I know people can go back and look at your 2012 talk if they want the full, the full detail, but you have this democratization of art, and that's part mm -hmm. of the key part of what you were doing is you were trying to provide a way for people to get, you know, let's say real art, art that was right. from artists you know and were working with, and whether it was a print that was very inexpensive or original art that was, more, that was at the high end, mm -hmm. you were trying to democratize the availability of that right. so people could get it without getting the same Ikea print, without getting the mass-produced stuff. Ikea bad. Yeah, Ikea bad. <laughs> No, don't get your art there. That's right. You can get a lot of things there. I have things from Ikea. We all do, not but, art. But you have the multiple different layers in that your business, you're helping to disintermediate um, artists from being able to reach people too, is mm -hmm. that they don't have to go through layer after layer. They don't necessarily have to sell themselves and build their own market. They're coming through you. So where do the artists stand when, um, you know, after this hiatus, you're coming back, you're rebooting, uh, were the artists like, did they come to you and say, oh, thank God you're, you're back? Did you have to go out and, and talk to them and try to convince them that this round is going to be different? Um, I mean, so we, just to give you, a, a, again, sort of a, the scale of the business, we've worked with over 300 artists. We've shipped 200,000 prints all over the world. Our mailing list is 100,000 people. And every time we send out a newsletter, it's somebody... It's either me personally or someone on my team writing thoughtfully about the artists and their work and making sure that the people who are getting the art are not just getting something to put over their couch. It's fine if it's going over your couch, but actually here's what the person was up to when they made this beautiful thing, right? And so um, there were certain people who said to me, artists just want to get paid. They don't care who the check comes from. You can guess who that was. Actually, no. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all and like a lot of them and I actually they still say this to me now is that you know an artist that we just worked with recently he said I would have never even considered selling my prints for $24 or $240 if anyone else had asked and it's because it's not and I think you know I mean this is something that despairs me about the world in general is that actually making the most money all the time is not everybody's number one priority and for the artists like Yes, there's substantive money, but there's also thoughtful presentation of their work to an audience that they could never reach otherwise, and the opportunity for people who they would love to own their work but couldn't afford a $10,000 gallery piece to actually have it. And so they were super supportive. I mean, you know, it was a lot of conversations. I spent a lot of time on the phone. Well, I don't I, like the phone. I was going to ask you, too, is the... <laughs> Who has who, anybody like the phone these days? I'm using a stopwatch to. on my phone. That's the thing I like it for right now. But if it was this big, wouldn't that be better if the phone were that large? I'm going to do uh, that, by the way. I'm doing that. Uh, but, I'm, so, I'm all over it. So you, you know, you're talking about, there's a financing aspect, and you're talking about that really bluntly. And you, when you relaunched, you started slowly. This wasn't like, a, all right, one day we woke up, and 20 by 200 is back, and it's got super Ajax mm -hmm. back-end PHP. We're on Shopify 100%. Yeah, great, right. One hundred. I mean, we have, like, our blog. It, it's not ideal, don't get me wrong, but, like, we are 100% on Shopify. Yeah. But, so you re, but you rebuilt in pieces. I know I saw articles come out, things came out, you know, we're starting to see glimmerings. There's a new uh, URL. It's Coming back, you must have to manage expectations at that stage too. How did you deal with the response from people when you started to, you know, turn the machinery and start dialing back up? You must have right. heard from a lot of people. It was really, I mean, well, you know, so there were certain people that we'd been talking to all along, and then 
Um, we did, we took a very measured approach to sort of coming back. Um, we'll, we're actually, the only reason that we're at a different URL right now is because I want to be. We have the 20 by 200 URL, but it was actually like, it was great. It was great, all, it was great first of all, to have people come there and embrace us, even though we'd been offline for almost a year at that point. But it, what was even more amazing and what the team is particularly proud about now is that half of the people that have bought from us since we relaunched are new people. So, and we don't spend money on marketing. So, and that's because it's a good product. And wouldn't you know it, people like to buy good products. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and so, um, and I will say that I, one of the things that was super interesting, not everybody gets to take a year-long hiatus where I was sipping Mai Tais on the beach. Uh, you, you don't get to step back from your business for a year and stop it, which is why running a startup is so freaking hard, right? Because once it's going, it's going. And I learned a lot by having this opportunity to kind of step back and look at the business. I had looked at Shopify years ago, and I would have never considered that it would be a platform that was usable for us. And then, guess what? It had changed over that time, you know? And also, if I had looked at it again at a later point and I had a team of devs, they like to build stuff, yes. not use. So, so I, I actually had this opportunity to kind of recalibrate stuff and also really kind of look at how stuff worked and where we could improve it and where we didn't have to. So, you know, it's been, I mean, it's still really hard. Like I, there are th certain things I'm good at and I would love to spend all my time on the things that I'm good at instead of spreadsheets and conference calls and legal documents and, you know, which is like part of my reality. And, but at the same time, you know, like the site is up, we're releasing editions, people are buying art. Um, and I actually am more passionate and more excited about the idea of art collecting being a mainstream endeavor than I ever have been. What do you do differently this time around now that you're kind of coming around the circle and we're talking about tools, tools always mm -hmm. improve, which is great. And so development is easier or you can start with that. But what else do you do that's different knowing what you know and coming back to it? Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting that isn't so much about knowledge, but just about uh, organizational dynamics is that we were, I think we were about 22 or 23 people when we went offline. And now we're four people, four full-time people, and then like freelance writers and things like that. And actually, and I, I think a lot of people here who've worked in software or product development know that sometimes you get a lot more done with a small group of people than you do with a big group of people. So that's, you know, been, that's been nice. You know, I think that um, it's, it's hard. I mean, like, I, I actually have complained to my colleagues that, like, I don't like being a little baby company. It's really hard because, but, but it's because I'm, I really want everyone to collect art. Like, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm really excited about that idea, and I feel like we know how to do it, and a lot of people have tried to figure it out, and a lot of people have spent many, many, many more venture dollars trying to figure it out and gotten nowhere near to where we got. And so I'm sort of anxious not just to get back to where we were, but to exceed that and to do it in a way that's sustainable and to do it in a way... Like, um, I was talking to Scott Rosenberg last night, actually, about how um, B Corps are super interesting to me because we're a mission-driven business. We're values-driven. And um, 
you know, I, I was naive the first time I took venture money, even though I was not a baby, but, and I, I was sort of like, oh, shareholder value. And if I don't maximize shareholder value, I'm breaking the law, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and sometimes maximizing shareholder value is not the thing that you want to do as a business. And so I'm just trying to do things differently. Um, and it's hard because I'm impatient. And when you don't have resources, it slows you down. And it's a dance. Well, Jen, thank you for talking about the re Here, I'll take your mic. Thank, thank you for talking about the reboot and and uh, and good luck on the on these next stages. We'll hiatus together. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, 99designs. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you probably know that I was trained in graphic design and worked as a typesetter. I know how the field works. It's a process of exploration and creativity. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to work in when you're trying to create something that expresses an idea, a thought, or even concrete information in a graphic way. It's a means of communication. And there are many people who can design something effective for you. The trouble is trying to find the right thing that you need at the time you need for the price you want and get a consistent result. This is where 99designs offers a unique deal. They connect you with over 310,000 graphic designers in their worldwide network. They've vetted these folks, and they know they do quality work, and they monitor them over time. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee on any work that you get through them, and they can help you get logos, websites, T-shirts, car wraps, anything that you can get designed. They can help you make a match, and you don't just get hooked up with one designer. Instead, you pick what you need. There's a flat price associated with it, and then designers compete for your business. They actually show you sketches and ideas or even completed work. You pick what you want and then you work through to completion with that designer. The whole thing takes a week, sometimes less, to get a high quality result from a professional designer, again, with this 100% money back guarantee. So you get to look at a lot of ideas. You don't have to contract with someone long term and you get what you want. And if it doesn't work out, you've got a, a way out of that as well. This is what 99designs is doing. It's great for the designers to get this constant flow of work vetted through 99designs to help them. It's great for you because you know you're going to get a consistent result backed up by a guarantee, as well as having access to a huge number of people. People who otherwise would have to find one by one. It's a terrific site, a terrific idea, and it helps everyone involved. And to sweeten the deal, 99designs has a special offer for you, listener to The New Disruptors. If you go to their website, you can get a $99 power pack of services for free right now. Visit the URL, 99designs.com slash disruptors. Now that's numeral nine, numeral nine, designs.com slash disruptors. And you'll be able to get that $99 power pack of services for free today. Give them a try and let them know we sent you. And now, back to the podcast. So we're going to do talk show styles. So we've done one chair. I'll call up uh, Zoe to the stage. Hello, Zoe. It's not Ed Asner. It's my brain. Who's uh, Johnny Carson's sidekick? Why can't I remember? Ed McMahon. <laughs> Can remember his laugh, but not anything else. I'm sorry. So I'll give you this is Zoe. Hello. Hi. Saldich, yeah. Saldich. I'll get it right. It's good. So Zoe Saldich is... Uh, <laughs> welcome to the stage. <laughs> 
So you have a perfect transition. If you have beautiful art, you need a place to display it. And that's the idea behind Electronic Objects. It's a massively funded Kickstarter project that just ended about a month ago. Uh, but Zoe's interest is less in the technology than the uses to which people will put it. In the midst of producing their EO1 model, their flagship launch model, they have artists and residents who are already working on conceptual ideas. So they're considering a future for their hardware uh, for the EO1 and beyond as a platform for art, not just as a technology in and of itself. And so maybe 20 by 200 and EO have a lot in common yeah, about the... Yeah, no, it was really inspiring to hear Jen. As a woman who works in, in the art business, it's always, always it's wonderful. Oh, it's easy. <laughs> Wait a minute, what did you do? <laughs> Hold on, I'm confused. The, uh, but, so the, but EO1, I mean, so the intention on electronic objects, we should talk, maybe you yeah. could describe the device right. first, because you just raised almost $800,000 on Kickstarter. Yes. It was one of the blockbusters, and um, there's, a, there's a certain... Oh, Oh, good. Thank you. There's a certain... Hey, there we go. This is the thing. There's... there's um, I think even talking oh, from... A, oh, there's, I think, probably half the people in the audience have, have, uh, well, have one on you. If you backed us, yes. Right. Well, if you, if you weren't one of our backers and you didn't hear about us on Kickstarter, um, Electric Objects is an integrated computer and screen that you hang on your wall and, so that you can display art from the Internet in your home. So um, the idea came about... A year ago, exactly, um, my co-founder and CEO, Jake Levine, started uh, futzing around with a Raspberry Pi um, and made the very first prototype. Uh, he gave it to a bunch of friends and family and uh, just started asking people to upload artwork that they found on the Internet, and it proved to be a, actually an interesting idea. So uh, after he, you know, tested it out with his friends and family, um, he reached out to me so that we can start getting uh more art made specifically for the screen. Um, we thought, well, we found that well, you could easily find an image on Tumblr but, uh, and upload it to your screen, but it might not be the right resolution. It might be not the right context for that piece. So um, we think there's a lot of value for work made specifically for this context. And then also specifically for the context of your home. Uh, work that's made for the gallery or for the museum is uh, intrinsically different than art made for the home. Well, and part of this was like the first iPad. One of the things that I thought was remarkable about it was that the device disappeared. And I, always heard, and I could see it with kids. I could see it with my own use of it. It was it removed the instrumentation from how I was thinking. And I feel like when I look at this, that's the same idea as you're removing the, the interface from the device. The device is not a menu-driven whatever. There's right. a separate control for it so that what you're presented with when you look at it is the art that you're sort of – it's bare art, but uh, it can be a rich experience that – the owner doesn't have to, you know, control an intermediate. They can choose. They can select. That seems like a different kind of platform for disseminating, uh, especially interactive art, but all kinds of art into this environment. Because usually there's like, you know, a click my Apple TV shows my stream of Flickr photos or right. something like that. This is a different kind of, of stream of things that people can right. access. It's not a it's not a um, screensaver, right? Your computer, your smartphone, your your iPads, uh, they're multi-purpose devices, right? They're made for productivity and entertainment. Um, and there are lots of people out there who are trying to sandwich art into these spaces. And I don't, and I think everyone in electric objects feels that it doesn't really afford artwork the time and space that it deserves. Um, and so to create a, a dedicated display, a dedicated device for art that doesn't give you alerts, doesn't notify you, that doesn't beep and boop at you, um, uh, is a way to, to elevate work that's made on the internet that's valuable, that's culturally really relevant you know, for this moment. And so to make a device that disappears, that puts the art forward, is, is really where our heart and our minds are at right now. 
think this opens up a lot of potential too because uh, we don't know like people artists who work in you know conceptual interactive art they don't always know how it's going to be received and I was uh, thinking about um, the the amount of interactive art I've seen in museums, um, sometimes it requires bespoke hardware. Someone's developed something to create an installation, and it can never run anywhere else. That mm -hmm. gets you into conservation everything else. But uh, you're already working with artists and residents who are trying to develop things for this. Does this open up a new possibility for artists in delivering less conventional media to patrons and oh, yeah, certainly. viewers. Yeah, uh, trying to collect uh, interactive uh, media art has always been a, a difficult problem in the same way that, you know, how do we collect performance art? There, there are solutions out there that work, um, but for the most part, um, it, it's not quite... Uh, it's never the, the object that you're after. You know, there's no way to capture the performance and keep it on your bookshelf. Um, but... Uh, when you give an artist a platform and you say this platform is going to be the same experience across you know, a thousand screens across the world, it excites them because then this is a way for people to collect and have the same experience. Um, so, yeah, so our artists in residence, we have um, about 12 people on board right now who are uh, working away. We just shipped out the prototypes yesterday which is really oh exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they're all getting their, the hardware very soon, and we'll start building um, and, and really like testing out the contours of the technology. So what's really thrilling for me about bringing artists at this stage in our, in our company is that we don't even know the capabilities of our technology quite yet. You know, we're, we're building it as we speak. So giving it into the hands of artists right now helps us learn the, you know, the, the limitations and, um, and you know, possible capabilities and, and coming up with... Uh, um, tools and features that we haven't thought of yet that are actually going to be really useful. So the artists that we're bringing in uh, right now are people who are eager to experiment and, uh, and help us make this a really like, viable and excellent tool for artists in the future. And it's, I think it's telling as um, this is, I mean, this nature of the internet is most projects and coming to this event, I think you self-select into the group of people who want to share things. And this is not a closed platform. There's a developer's kit. It seems to be envisioned from what you talked about, even starting with Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, I don't know if it's open source, but it's going to be open. There'll be open access to it. Yeah. And I know there are competitors. I've seen stuff that's, that is even, you know, very high end. One, a former boss of mine launched and sold a company that delivered art to, uh, you know, high def displays when they're otherwise, or plasma the space when they're otherwise being unused. That was a closed platform. That was a licensing thing. It was pitching people on the idea of not having to select and things being pushed. But you're going to let people have access to this platform. And the artists and residents, what kind of mix of people are there between artists and programmers or are all of them artists yeah. programmers? Um, well, so uh, just for some background information, I uh, formerly worked at a nonprofit called Rhizome, which is an art and technology nonprofit. And so I'm actually quite familiar and embedded with a whole community of artists who are also technologists, mm -hmm. people who are making art with technology, um, who have a hard time differentiating themselves as an artist or a developer, right? So there is a vast sea of people who are those both people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and I think a lot of those people are also here at XOXO. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, those people, I'm sorry, I'm already forgetting the question. Oh, well, I was, uh, you've got an open platform. Open you're already platform. encouraging right, people. Right. We're encouraging mm -hmm. people to build on this. So, right, there's a, uh, uh, you know, a developer kit, and, you know, uh, we're going to let people, you know, go through the back and build the things they want to build. Uh, we have an idea of what this product should be, and we're going to feature that first and foremost, but we're not fascist by any means, so you can do what you want with your hardware. Um, you can display the kind of art that you want. Like, we're not going to tell you what 
what you can and cannot do with your EO1. Oh, so they're, so they're not going to have Steve Jobs limits on uh, what can be shown. Right. That's good. I mean, you yeah. mentioned Tumblr earlier. I'm like, I don't know if I ever would want to feed Tumblr into anything. Right. I would be... <laughs> Well, if you were me, you would only want Tumblr like f- to filter through. Every time you like something, maybe something pops up. It's on true. Your... If you've chosen, yes. Yeah. If you've it's, chosen, it all depends it. on your taste. And then that's like a, actually an interesting community problem that I'm I've been grappling with since I started in April. It's like how can you build a really inclusive community, but also curate um, work that uh, helps you know push forward and market your company, right? And so um, it's a delicate balancing act of like, we're open and we'll let you do what you want, but, um, you know, I'm sorry, there's no porn um, for your screen sort of thing. Right. So. so you've got people working on stuff already. Yeah. Do you have anything that you can tell me about some of the early projects that are uh, interesting, intriguing uses that you're excited about coming? Yeah, so um, we're working with one artist. Her name is Lauren McCarthy, um, and she has an, a really interesting idea that I, I hope she can execute. Um, so, like, don't hold me to it if it doesn't actually happen. Um, but uh, she wants to make a, uh, a Twitter uh, application that pulls from your timeline and either will either pull just one of the most salient tweets from your timeline and it will appear on your screen or, um, or make some sort of like horse ebooks like uh, amalgamation of tweets from your entire timeline and it'll stay up for a day or a week or something. Um, and so uh, that's the idea. And so we're, we're figuring out what it means to, you know, create a piece like that where you have to log in through Twitter and, um, and things like that. But it's nice to think that uh, each person would have a totally different experience. It's based exclusively on your timeline, so it's a very personalized um, art experience. Well, and I think um, there's some wonderful interactive art in which... Uh, uh, you know, programs run and they produce unpredictable, non-deterministic results. Are people working on that kind of thing already? Yeah, so we've been talking uh, and working closely with um, an artist named Casey Reyes, who's uh, the co-founder of Processing, which is a visual programming language. Um, and uh, and with that, you know, you can make a lot of generative uh, works. You know, you can tap into other data sets and build this beautiful visualization from that, or just create a, a series of code that makes a gorgeous thing that moves about. Um, and so we're uh, looking into what it means to support that uh, natively, like uh, uh, on the device. But regardless, um, uh, and just as background, um, Electric Objects is essentially a browser. It's running WebKit. So anything that can be rendered in the browser will appear on your screen. So uh, JavaScript uh, can, uh, can be displayed, um, video, animated GIFs, um, there's a lot of possibility for really dynamic pieces. But so where it gets exciting is how it gets distributed, then interconnected, right? Is right. The, like, I mean, not that everything has, everything does not have to be a mashup. I know everything is a mashup. Everything doesn't have to be. But it sounds like this is ripe for that, where there's recombinant things that people go, oh, I've pushed this out, and you know, ostensibly you get some metrics. Yeah. A thousand people downloaded it, and they're running it 20 hours a day if they give you permission that you know that they're doing it, what you're looking at on your home screen, but that it seems like then you have the ability to build from both what users are doing and the community of people right. who want to get engaged in it. Yeah, right now um, in our uh, our closed you know beta group, uh, there is a, a tab where you can see what's being currently displayed on every screen. You know, it's Hilarious. Nice um, wow. And you can see for how many hours that yeah. image uh, has been displayed. And so uh, I remember early on, uh, Jake Levine, I, the co-founder and CEO of Electric Optics, and I were talking about 
you know, what does success look like? Is it a, an, a, an image that's up on someone's screen for 60 hours? Or is success when someone's changing their image every day? And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at all these metrics and, um, and all these numbers and trying to solve for that. But um, it is really interesting to tell somebody, uh, like, oh, hey, your, your image that someone uploaded has been on their screen for five days now. They've been, like, living with this thing that you posted on Tumblr, and they, like, normally people, like, engage with for maybe a millisecond is now, like, being engaged with for five days. Artists are very familiar with that. On the other side is I went to this design program. I did not do this, but someone in a graduate program in Switzerland spent, I want to say, two years drawing the Matterhorn over and over and over and over and over again. So they understand this looking at. You see Mm -hmm. people who stand in the art gallery also and stare at a work for an hour and that things emerge and resolve from it. Artists must love having the potential for that and then to know. Yeah, no, I think... um, I think in this age where we're, you know, the age of the feed, like we've all been um, really uh, absorbed in like consuming as much information as possible. And so as, an, uh, you know, the, 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 the consequence of that is that we don't really spend a whole lot of time with one thing. Like I also have that problem. I have 80 tabs open and I can't read one article at a time. I have to read three things at a time. And um, so uh, it's been really refreshing for me to have something in my home, you know, to sit amongst all the other, you know, artworks in my home where I can appreciate these digital objects um, for longer periods of time. I see new things in them. I create a new relationship with them um, because it's in my bedroom. I stare at it when I go to sleep. I wake up and I see it. Um, you know, it, it greets me and, and says goodnight to me. And, you know, it, it, yeah, you build a relationship with things. And the fact that I also have the opportunity to change the image um, also means I have, uh, I'm afforded the opportunity to create a lot of relationships with a lot of different a lot of different objects, which is, I think, the most exciting thing about having an art display, an art screen in your home. This reminds me of the scene from Diva, if everyone remembers that movie, where the fellow is sitting, the woman says, he wants to stop the waves, and you see guys staring at a wave machine, (laughs) tilting back and forth, and I think, but that's the ultimate compliment, I guess, is would be somebody getting an electric object and never changing the image. They pull it up, and 10 years, would be a good project, 10, 20, 30 years later, it's the same image. I would be so impressed to meet that person. That that would be a great great customer and a great user that I would love to get to know. Well, let let me finish up with this, which is that uh, I I am so old that I remember when I had to move bits uphill in both directions to get them over the internet. We actually had to push them into the wires with sticks and <laughs> move them along. And so, you know, I come from this text background. I still use, I live in terminal, I'm still typing characters around. But we have a whole rich environment now. Like, this is one of the most wonderful things about the modern internet is, and it seemed, it's not super new, of course, but that we're so image rich, we're so video rich, that it feels like even with whatever limits we have in bandwidth in the United States, we're still able to see so much more. That's the baseline now, is that we can see anything we want at almost any resolution we want and almost any moving picture. When you open up all that potential, is that terrifying or exciting or a combination of both? Um, it, yeah, it's a combination of both because I guess, uh, you know, starting a business, you're just always nervous. You're like, am I positioning this right? Am I, like, showing our best side? Like, I want to, I just want the world will love this as much as I do. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really fucking exciting. Like you can do a lot of stuff with this. Like, um, our product doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles or not a lot of sensors, but it's connected to the internet, which is arguably the biggest sensor known to man. So you can do so many things with this. There's so much potential to hack on this and make really cool and interesting projects. And, you know, I can't, I personally can't think of all those ideas. And so I'm 
really, really excited um, and nervous and, and thrilled to work with a bunch of artists to help me figure all that out. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for telling us about what you're working on, especially this, all this art. It's great. Thank you very thank you. much. Thank oh, thanks. Let's take a break so I can tell you about GIF Pop, a tool that makes custom cards from animated GIFs, and they're one of our sponsors this week. Now, you know one of the most contentious issues on the internet is whether to pronounce GIF with a soft G or a hard G. Well, my initials happen to be G-I-F, and I have strong feelings about it. However, this company is called GIF Pop, G-I-F-P-O-P, even if I say GIF. And what they do is they take the magic of the internet, animated GIFs or GIFs, and turn them into lenticular prints. With lenticular printing, you print multiple images on the same sheet, and then depending on the angle you're looking at it, the light reflects from one frame at a time. You can print up to 10 frames in GIFPOP's method and have essentially, as you move it back and forth, the equivalent of a physical animated GIF. Or GIF. It's a really great idea, and it brings some of the charm and whimsy that we have on the internet. I think that's one of the reasons that animated GIFs made a comeback, is that they're used to convey certain kinds of thoughts in a shorthand. So you can take that, and you can produce a card from it that you can have for yourself, you can carry around, or you can give us a gift. They have five different sizes at Gift Pop, from business card size up to five by five inches, and it's totally inexpensive. It's $12 to $15 a piece. They'll offer discounts if you order in bulk. And you can also order gift cards to give to other people, or are they gift cards, so that they can redeem and turn their gifts into lenticular prints as well. Lenticular printing is one of the coolest things, and you've probably mostly seen it with kids' things or novelty postcards. It's a fun technique, and it's a great thing to marry in the internet age between digital and physical. So what do you do? You go to gifpop.io, G-I-F-P-O-P.io, and you use the coupon code DISRUPT for 10% off your order. You can contact them if you need more information or if you want to do bulk printing. They take about two to three business days to ship your order, and gift pops are made in New York. Gift Pop also sells work by artists and gives 80% of the proceeds of sales to them. If you've got work that you'd like them to consider for sale, they'll take a look at it too. Visit their site and you can find out how. So bring the joy of the internet to the physical, movable, offline world with GIFPOP. 10% off with the code DISRUPT at GIFPOP.io. G-I-F-P-O-P.io. I may say GIF, other people say GIF, but we're all in it together, folks. And now back to the show. So because the theme is art tonight, which was Surely intentional. Mike Merrill's coming up on stage. Mike, I'll give you an introduction, but here's Mike. I'll give you this mic. Here's a mic, Mike. So uh, with most people, if you said to them, I can buy and sell you, it would be an incredibly douchebaggery uh, uh, statement. Um, it's a boast about your ostensible personal net worth. But with Mike Merrill, it's the literal truth. Mike is a publicly traded company, or at least part of you is, and shareholders vote on the course his life takes, including how he pursues romantic interests. Shares in K. Mikey M. have traded as high as $25 during one trading session and typically change hands uh, in the recent past in a band of 5 to $10 per share. Volume is relatively low. We know that's okay. But we brought you here today to talk about, you got a lot of coverage about a year and a half ago. Uh, your life uh, got exposed uh, on a big stage, wired to the big story, and people covered, there was follow-up from that. It's been a year and a half, 
And so you've had a chance to settle into what this means more than I think when you were sort of a smaller part of yourself. It was something you were engaged in as a, um, it was public, but maybe more private, a smaller group. It got splayed out on a big stage. How did that affect how your, your stock traded, how your decisions were made? It was scary. Um, this project started in 2008, and it was friends and then maybe friends of friends. And it was very low volume, and it was all people that I knew that were investing. And then with press comes a lot more people reading that press, and suddenly I no longer knew the majority of the shareholders. And so that was that thing where I was like, oh, fuck. You know, people like that's, you don't know. Yeah, because I don't... I'm still putting these questions up, and it's like, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, but my, my thesis from the beginning was this project is sort of a beacon of like-minded people. You know, that I did this because I wanted to invest in it, and I wanted to participate. And so by, by putting it up, I think other people are similarly like, oh, that's, that's weird and fun. I want to participate. And so I found that it's been, if someone's willing to give you money, they probably like you is sort of one of the things that I've discovered. But when you get detached from that, when you have people who are further out from your circle and people you don't know, this is sort of like, I feel like there's a parallel with Kickstarter where you have an inner circle, your, your, you know, your mom, your family, like your mother likes you, let's hope your mother likes you, your mom, your family, your friends, and then you get out to friends of friends, people you know, your well-wishers, and then there's people you don't know and somebody puts in $1,000 in your Kickstarter, you go, that's really nice, and who are you? And what, do you, and what do you, oh, that's great, thank you, and you form a new relationship. Did you have that oh, start to happen? Uh, this, I mean, I would call him a good friend. I've never met him in person. Uh, Douglas Dollars started investing after that point, and he, he told me, like, I was like, hey, what's up? We should, you know, communicate somewhat if you're going to invest a lot of money in me. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, I, my goal is to be your biggest shareholder. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, let's, let's do this. But so, but, but he's betting against. I mean, you should give a little background so you can you can read a lot about Mike online. So I won't give you all the background. But but I mean, this was a project. Um, uh, you engage in this in an entirely unironic and serious it's, fashion. This was, is not a goof. No, no, it was designed as in a, in a very capitalist sense. As I, I do a lot of projects that involve community because I don't know how to do anything by myself. And so I would do these large projects that involved a lot of people. And I did one that failed uh, because I didn't have enough money at by a certain deadline and I thought well all these people are willing to give me money why don't I just ask them for it it like now and then figure out the project later that seems like a good idea um and then and then I'll let them vote on the project so that they get to still have some control and I was like well what's the model for that and I was like oh we've as humans have figured that out it's called capitalism works pretty well so yeah so that was the in this audience I'm surprised half the people didn't get up when you said that Community through capitalism. That's my, that's my motto. But one of the things you did, though, is you ceded control. And this is why I say you're unironic about it. You ceded control. We on, all do, though. Well, that's, yeah. So, yeah. But, but it, so you did it in an explicit fashion. Most of us do it in an implicit fashion. We accept decisions others make or put upon us or we engage in contracts in which most things are implicit. But yours are all, you have shareholder meetings. You have people yeah. vote on stuff and it, questions. It's not a model that I would necessarily propose that everyone use. Um, you know, like my mom pointed out, judging a person's uh, input advice by how much money they've given you is a little bit flawed. And I was like, man, touche. Good point, Mom. Uh, She's not a shareholder. Um, (laughs) My dad is a shareholder. Uh, So 
But I do think that as a culture, as much as no individual person wants to admit it, we judge things and we value things based on how much money they make. And, and money is our metric. It's our, only me- it's our only universal metric. And that's fucked up and that's not a good idea, but it is, right? Like, we celebrate companies that make a lot of money. We, you know, it's, it's sad when people don't have money. It's just like, that's what we have. And so a little bit of it is just saying like, okay, rather than fight that, let's just embrace it and push that further. And so... If that's the metric of my success, then, like, how do I measure that? Well, your influence is how many shares that you own and, and so on and so forth. And if you really care about me, you should buy shares in me. And other than my mom, that's worked out pretty well. Well, I was going to say, there's not much different at some level between you and Bitcoin. No, absolutely not. There's, I mean, they're both, like, although you're a physical instantiation of Bitcoin is not, and that may be trickier, but it's, but uh, no one is, this isn't a return, people aren't investing in you uh, because they want to receive a 10% return per year. You're not paying dividends. This is people invested in you as, uh, for all kinds of reasons, but it's partly, it seems like they want to be part of this experiment that you're involved in. I think Bitcoin is confusing to people because there's no inherent value to it, right? right? The value of it is only it might go up or down. And so it feels like this really strange gamble. Um, and that's, you know, that's true. I think the same is mostly true for myself, except that I say your, your vote times how many of your shares in my life decision. So there's a value there. There's like, oh, you have influence. That's what I'm granting you in exchange. So now that you've got all this attention a bit ago and you've lived through it, has it fundamentally changed your life to have more, ex- more exposure in the general world and then also more exposure to people you don't know influencing these decisions? It's a wonderful way. It's a wonderful introduction. It always has been. Like, oh, I do this thing. And then people get, like, really kind of upset. And it's like, it's not that bad, um, but kind of is. People um, get mad at you. Oh, yeah. I, I have to defend the concept of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I live in Portland, Oregon. I I think that women are not unfamiliar with the concept of being bought and sold. I think that people of color are not unfamiliar with the concept of being bought and sold. And so it's, I mean, like, it's kind of hard to, I mean, I'm actually very curious. I'm, I'm very curious to hear, like, I mean, and again, like, I'm not trying to be aggressive, but like, you are allowed to do this project and pursue it as privilege. Like, I don't want to buy and sell myself. In fact, part of my achievement is not having to do that and not having that be the only means of creating value. And so I'm just kind of curious to hear how you have navigated basically otherness in relation to, like, what you're doing. I I think there's a very intentional... I mean, I've I've thought about this a lot. Like, Like, I am a you know, white male, right? And so what, what is this kind of stereotypical version of that? Like, who are my people, right? And it's like, oh, it's a, it's a businessman, you know? Like, I've, I've embraced that as a character um, that then has sort of become true. Like, I was, you know, norm- for, for years I wore, like, you know, shirt, tie, whatever. Recently, you know, I have a black t-shirt on because, like, Tim Cook was wearing a black t-shirt that was like, oh, that's the modern CEO, right? Like, like it's emulating that style. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's a v-neck. It works a little better. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, absolutely there's some privilege or a lot of privilege that comes with it that I'm entirely ignorant of, right? Because I, I just have it and I haven't had to necessarily think about it. I think people generally are opposed to it as the idea of a person selling themselves, not as as 
a white male selling themselves. Okay. People selling themselves, there's a long history of that. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, and I'm not trying to like, I'm, I'm just, I'm actually trying to understand your framework because it doesn't, like as a woman, it doesn't actually register. I mean, it just, to me, it's very interesting because it does not register to me to be able to look at buying and selling myself as a sort of novelty, right? I think that, that the, the idea of buying and selling um, me is a little bit wrong. Like, it's an investment, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's someone is going to put money into this system and have a vote that, that is actually entirely up to me. I still maintain that level of control. I put the questions up for vote. So my rule is anything I would normally ask my friends for, I go to these shareholders for. So I, I would hope so. This, yeah. this is the perfect example, though, but you are yeah. angry, and, which, and, and reasonably so. Not trying to talk you out of being uh, angry, upset, but so you're encountering what, what Jen is talking about. You encounter this in different forms on a regular basis whenever this comes up, that yeah, it, it, provokes, it like, provokes this response. And, and I don't have a very strong defense of capitalism or of um, you know, any, any of those larger problems, but it is a space that I play in, you know? Um, and, and then I'm, yeah, so I, I don't necessarily have an, a good answer well, for those so, things. So when people, but when people confront you with that and they say, you know, so you've made this choice in your life to see, to, to uh, organize yourself as a corporation and, you know, and, and there are the levels of the corporations or people now in America and so forth that, that you're a person who's a corporation. When people approach you with that, do you really, I mean, what, do you, what I guess that is the question is, is uh, they're, they're angry because of, what do they say, or can they articulate what they're angry about, as opposed to going, that's strange, or, oh, that's very interesting, but they actually, you're provoking a response in people. I, th I mean, I think that's probably, you have one of the more articulated responses I get. I think generally it is just more of this, like, uncomfortable feeling of, I don't want to put myself in that position. Mm -hmm. And I often counter with, I think a lot of us already are in that position, right? Like, who we're around and what our community tells us and how we absorb it very much affects who we are. Um, and so what part of this project is to define that purposely and prescriptively and say, no, I'm not who I am in this city or I'm not who I am because of where I work. I'm who I am because of this very external force and system that I created. It's, so you, I, I think I'm yeah. more in control. Well, this is the thing that came out with Bitcoin, I think, too, is like the difference between Bitcoin and currency is there's a coercive effect of currency is that governments have militaries and they have the ability to enforce you to accept money. It's the, the legal tender of the United States. You have to ex pay people in it, accept money in it. There's a, there's a force factor. You don't have... Uh, you've got torts or contract law behind you, right? Is that you sign contracts with people and you have a, a kind of personal agreement that is hard to break You've committed yourself to a path, but it, but it could be broken. You have the ability to come out of it. Yeah, and if I broke it, presumably my stock price would drop <laughs> That's right. immensely. Well, if you'd like to argue with Mike more about capitalism, you can find him after. And I'd like to thank all the guests for coming up here. Jen, Zoe, and Mike, thank you for being part of this inaugural story part. I just want to finish with one last thing. is When we were putting this together, um, instead of... 
going out into the wider, wider world, we actually looked inside. And I looked over the list of attendees and talked to the Andes about who would make sense. And it's not so much these three folks on stage are fantastic in their own rights and are doing interesting, evocative, provocative work. But it's also um, anybody in the audience. I think this is the thing that's magnificent. We try, I try to cultivate a little bit around art. So this is an art theme, as you can tell. It's, it's subtle, right? But, the, um, but I felt this being part of the audience the first year, and I'm sure everyone here is, anybody out there, I could have up on stage for an hour and we could talk about the many interesting things that, that you're doing, that you're charting the course, and I hope you'll all take that going forward. I'm surely, I surely take this forward every year when I come back to here. It's like the salmon coming back, except I guess I don't die, right? I spawn new ideas and they go downriver, I hope, but uh, I hope everyone takes that, that forward as well, is that the value of XOXO in part is that we all come here, we share ideas, and we all have this motive force to try to do something interesting, evocative, important to ourselves, and that has an effect on others. And so I thank everyone for coming to this session. I thank everyone for being part of this that's helped us all get here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this special live episode, and thanks for all your support over the last couple of years. I want to read off the names of Patreon backers and thank them particularly for supporting us directly. Brian J. Clark, Pasha Alpeyev, Andy Bayo, Matthew Blay, Alex Bond, Henry Brown, Arnavin Chatterjee, Reddy Chi, Jordan Cooper, Craig, Taran Gungwani, Gravity Fish, Accounting Guy, Gregory Hayes, Brian J. Geiger, Jonathan Mann, Mike Manzer, Chris Markle, Rowan Mars, Andre Matetic, Gordon McDowell, Andy McMillan, Rene Ogland, George O'Toole, Elliot Payne, Gary Pugh, R, Neil Richler, James Robilliard, Kay Schumann, Jonathan Stark, Kyle Studstill, Ted Timmons, CJ Tully, and Ben Wordmuller. Thank you so much for backing the program and, and helping us make it possible. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and thank you for listening. Thank you.